Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. There's an efficiency to poetry where if you do it right, you can say a lot with just a few words. In a bit, we'll hear from former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins about his new collection of short poetry. But first, the efficiency of poetry works a little differently in Franny Choi's new collection. It's called The World Keeps Ending and The World Goes On. And in it, she holds these two huge thoughts in her head at the same time with each poem. It's that horrible things have happened to people all throughout history that amount to nothing less than catastrophe. But also, people keep living. And that's kind of beautiful. Choi talked to Ampere's Leila Fadel about finding a sense of morbid comfort in the tragedies of the world. In her latest collection of poetry, Franny Choi draws on her family's history. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Seoul, South Korea, just a few months before she was born. In my family history is all of the painful parts of modern Korean history from colonization by the Japanese Empire to war and that devastating war that decimated the peninsula and also the division of the Koreas. Her book is called The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On, which also happens to be the title of one of the poems in her collection. She says she wrote the poems to cope with the state of the world, each one a reminder of other moments in the past that were apocalyptic, just not for everyone. My partner's Black, and I'm Korean, and in both of our family lineages are these enormous calamities in which our ancestors survived what seemed utterly unsurvivable. You know, what is more dystopian than the transatlantic slave trade? And, you know, what is more dystopian than the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which effectively ended, you know, was the the beginning of the end of, of Japanese colonial rule. And so remembering that the apocalypses, the kind of like world-ending calamities that sort of like seem always on the horizon and like threatening to, to take over are actually in some ways, are those things that we had to survive in order to even get here. Maybe it's a little morbid that that was comforting to me, but it was, yeah. Right? I was like, oh, how comforting, yeah, nuclear know, bombs and the transit. But I see what you mean. Like we are living these Every day, you and I might not be living them right now, but somebody in this world is living it right now and has lived it. Yeah. And I remember around that time reading an essay by the writer Rebecca Solnit who said, it's actually easy to imagine the end of the world. What's hard is imagining that a world might actually go on after that terrible, unsurvivable thing, that some version of the world might continue. Um, And so I, you know, I've never been one to turn down the hard homework. So um, I said, okay, I will try. I will do my best. Did you find comfort in revisiting the terribleness of what humanity has done in history? (laughs) What an amazing question. Um... I'm I'm laughing because the answer is yes. To know that my being here is dependent on someone having made a life out of an impossible situation makes me feel like, one, I too can survive, you know, the things that, that are thrown at me. Mm-hmm. But but also that this is just this is part of what it means to be alive. Brandy, could you read an excerpt from The World Keeps Ending and The World Goes On? The world keeps ending and the world goes on. 
The apocalypse began when Columbus praised God and lowered his anchor. It began when a continent was drawn into cutlets. It began when Kublai Khan told Marco, begin at the beginning. By the time the apocalypse began, the world had already ended. It ended every day for a century or two. It ended, and another ending world spun in its place. So both there is like a doomed sense in it, but also this idea that something will always live. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that so often what we think of as the end of the world is actually just an end of a world that we know, which, you know, uh, something that closes and then makes room for the next thing, which might be more terrible or less terrible. But I think that the, the, what I find comfort in is, is the not knowing. You explore a lot of dark themes in, in human history and, and current events, right? You talk about this is what you're watching in the world you live in um, and in the world of those who came before you. And then you end the collection with protest poem. And there is where I feel like there's kind of a call to action here. Like after all that we've learned and all that we've read about the world ending and beginning and ending and beginning, you write nothing cuts through walls like rage and its promises. No peace is a drill. Joy you have to charge to make work. So this poem felt different mm -hmm. to me. Can you talk about choosing mm -hmm. to end the collection on this and in writing this poem? Yeah, sure. I mean... First of all, I think it's a little bit of a joke to myself to end this collection on a on a poem that's called Protest Poem. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the idea of of protest poetry um, is every everybody sort of has like a, a a set of ideas about about what does and doesn't count as as protest poetry. Um, throughout the book, I'm sort of asking, like, is that what I'm doing? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, like, yes, but but what does that mean? This is a poem that I really I, I wrote while sitting in my apartment in at the time in Northampton, Massachusetts. This was 2020. It was the summer, and George Floyd had had been murdered uh, maybe a few weeks before, and the protests in our city were kind of like rocking the house. You know, the walls were shaking from the noise outside, and it is a physical experience to be in that moment of intense protest. And that was what I felt. Like, I couldn't even exactly hear the words of the chants that were being shouted. I, I could just feel the walls shaking, hear the cheer that, that followed each time a chant was repeated, and then feel the emotions of my body, every one of which were saying, something must be done, something has to change, that this grief and this rage have to go somewhere. And that was enough, you know, just the sounds and the feelings were enough, which is, I think, like, both beautiful and a little troubling as somebody whose work is words, you know, that, that the words in some ways don't even really matter. And so I think that I was ending the collection saying, okay, like all of this, all of these words, you know, this is, this is what I've been able to do. And then if you're going to take something from it, it would be wonderful if you took some of the language. It would be wonderful if you took some of the ideas. But if, if there's one thing you take away, I hope that it's this feeling of going through grief and rage and then getting to experience for the span of, of one book what something better might feel like. Franny Choi, her new book is called The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On. Franny, thank you so much. Thank you, Layla.
I used to be obsessed with T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. It's one of those long and epic poems where I was so wowed by its sprawl, and it turned me into one of those obnoxious English major types. Thankfully, I grew out of being impressed just by length, and here to argue for brevity is former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins. His collection of short poems is called Musical Tables, and he talked to NPR Scott Simon about how poems can pack so much feeling into so little space. Billy Collins believes in the beauty of short poems. He says they show how poetry can squeeze a lot of meaning into tight spaces. His new collection of short poems is called Musical Tables, and uh, let's ask him to uh, read one called Dog. When she runs in her sleep, eyelids twitching, legs churning sideways on the floor, I wonder if she's chasing a squirrel or being chased by an angry farmer waving a rake. Billy Collins, the former Poet Lord of the United States, joins us now. Thank you so much for being back with us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. What's your special regard for short poems? I started being entranced by them probably when I discovered haiku when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I like the sense that it's a more sudden engagement. I've always preferred poetry as what I would write over the novel because of its quickness. Mm. I mean, the novelist is with you for weeks, right? I mean, there, mm -hmm. there he or she is on the nightstand day after day until you finish. The poet is more like someone, a door opens, the poet's standing there, he or she says something profound and musical about life and death, and then the door closes. It's sort of like, who was that masked man? And that sudden appearance is uh, made even more sudden if you reduce a poem to three or four lines. Mm. Do some poets worry that they have to go long to be considered important? I mean, I don't start with a, a concept in writing these poems mm -hmm. and then compact them into a shorter space. They seem to arrive fully formed, and they're so short that there's no beginning, middle, or an end. And many of the common pleasures that we associate with poetry are absent here. There's no landscape, for example, no personal reflection or a delivery of misery. There's not even any time to develop an idea. So it's more of a, just a verbal maneuver mm -hmm. uh, that takes place. I'm going to read an especially short one. In fact, I think the title might be longer than the poem. It's called Reflections on an Amish Childhood. I was a little square in a round hat. Very well read. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just enough non-drama. Oh, I love that poem. I was a little square in a round hat. And I find that tells a story. Well, it's very touching in a way. In the, that the boy is uh, speaking, yeah. but it's just basic geometry. <laughs> Could I get you to read a poem, Corridor? And I found it very affecting. It plucks your heart. Corridor. I've grown old. Now my own name rings a bell. Wow. That's a whole life in there for some or people. the end of one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think a corridor comes from, I mean, I, I want this to kind of corridor, I wanted to place it in a, a man in a hallway, yeah. between rooms, or even in a nursing home. Not only is it a very moving poem, I guess it's 
just as long as it needs to be. It's three lines long. Um, it has something in common with a number of these poems in that it takes a cliche, like that name rings a bell, a, a vague remembrance, mm -hmm. and it try to gives it uh, a fresh meaning by turning it rather on the speaker so that your own name is the one that's ringing a bell. You can barely remember it. Wow. I assume you have met and are even friendly with people who've been poet laureates of, say, the UK or France or Ireland. What's it like to be a poet laureate of the United States? Well, I can sum that up. There was one evening in London when I was having dinner with the current UK poet laureate, Andrew Motion. Of course, the British Poet Laureate writes what are called occasional poems, poems that are uh, commemorating a certain event, a coronation, for example. So at the end of the dinner, I said to him, I think the difference is basically this. The British Poet Laureate writes occasional poems, and the American Poet Laureate writes occasionally. <laughs> that that is that's probably the main that's the main difference. Yeah, uh, I I get to read one again if that's all right as a as a dog owner. Sure. And I'm struck by the uh, I'm not sure metaphor is the word the metaphor you make of poems or dogs do morning walk. The dog stops often to sniff the poems of others before reciting her own. <laughs> well, that shows that the dog knows that you need to be influenced by other poets before you recite your own. Well, our, our poodle writes haiku, but of course, uh, right. poodles, are, well, poodles are so... They're, they're prone to that. Until, yes, I, I know, exactly. May I ask, do your friends and family expect you to write a poem for them on holidays or birthdays? No, I've, I've never... They know better. <laughs> they know better, and you don't know me very well. But if you knew me just a little better, you wouldn't you wouldn't think to ask me. So I don't I don't really get that. So not on demand. I've written two poems on demand: one for the three hundredth anniversary of the Trinity School in New York, mm -hmm. and the other on the first anniversary of nine eleven. I wrote a poem, right, and right. read yes. for uh, Congress. Yesterday I lay awake in the palm of the night, a soft rain stole in, unhelped by any breeze. And when I saw the silver glaze on the windows, I started with A, with Ackerman, as it happened, then Baxter and Calabro, Davis and Eberling, names falling into place as droplets fell through the dark. Names printed on the ceiling of the night, names slipping around a watery bend 26 willows on the banks of a stream. What kind of challenge is it to make yourself write a poem? I don't want to say to order, but as you did for the anniversary of 9-11, write a poem to, yes, to hit a certain date, a certain appearance in a certain circumstance. Well, one of the difficulties of, of that kind of a poem that has a definite subject, it really can't move off in some whimsical direction. It has to stick to the topic. Now, that's something you do in an essay at school. You stick to the topic. In mm -hmm. poetry, one of the, I mean, what I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy about poetry is that it doesn't care about the topic. It wants to lose the topic. So it was an impossible thing for me to write until I discovered I could do it 
by writing a, in a genre. So I wrote an elegy, mm-hmm. a poem for the dead. That way I could avoid all the other implications of that terrible event. Also, I could use the alphabet as a way to get through the poem, moving from letter to letter, almost as kind of handholds that would keep me going through the poem. So those were two uh, self-imposed restrictions. And those, paradoxically, those two uh, confinements allowed me to write the poem. Alphabet of names in a green field, names in the small tracks of birds, names lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue, names wheeled in to the dim warehouse of memory, so many names, there is barely room on the walls of the heart. How often does it happen that you begin a poem to say one thing, but writing it, it says something else? Well, that's uh, what we're looking for. That's what I'm looking for. I'm always looking to... uh, to move the poem or let the poem expand or contract or turn in some unexpected direction. That's really a very basic way to keep my own interest in the poem. If it keeps going in the same direction, there's really no thrill or surprise for the writer or the reader. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of kind of keeping, figuratively keeping a light touch on the pencil so that you allow it to move in other directions. You know what poem really got me? The Exception. The Exception. Whoever said there's a poem lurking in the darkness of every pencil was not thinking of this one. <laughs> was that a bad day, a bad afternoon? or It's just, I don't know. As I said, these things just arrive. I think the shortest one, the title is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Trouble was not his middle name. Yes. (laughs) Well, they're delightful. Um, Thank you. One last question. Do we read poems to children and get them to read and even remember and recite poems to interest them in literature and then somehow lose that thread? Well, I think it comes and goes. I think all children are natural-born artists Mm -hmm. in the sense that if you give a child some paper and some crayons and tell them not to write on the walls, they'll start drawing. You don't have to tell them about the prism and the color scheme and how to do things. Same with putting on some music. They'll often start dancing, especially to the Beatles. I find that interesting that children can't resist dancing to the Beatles. But at some point, something occurs called adolescence. And that's when self-consciousness comes in, and those natural creative abilities seem to wither, at least temporarily. And I think dancers, painters, trumpet players are people for whom the creative interest has not been killed off by adolescence and who recover those childhood abilities and the childhood joy of creating something new. Billy Collins, uh, former poet laureate of the United States and perpetual adolescent, his new collection, Musical Tables. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. 
And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Michael Radcliffe, Matthew Sherman, Rebecca Ramirez, Giselle Grayson, Burley McCoy, Erica Ryan, Justine Kennan, Ian Bjor, Ashley Brown, Julie Deppenbrock, Rena Advani, Gabriel Donatoff, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>